The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for gathering us here to hear your word, to hear it sung and to sing with it, to hear it prayed and to pray with it, and now to hear it preached, explained, thought through, and to think it through ourselves along with the preaching. We are people privileged to be engaged with you, to hear you and to and to meditate on you, and to grow up in you. And for that all, we need your spirit, and we say thank you. Thank you for giving us your word and for providing your spirit to grow us up. And now, Lord, will you speak here, direct my words, direct our thinking, meet with us, and build your church to your honor. Lord, you have privileged us with a life that is meant to be marvelous, filled with you and full of glory. So help us to think about that and to grow up in it and to walk in this newness of life. So clear away the distractions here, Lord, and, and make, us to, make us to meet with you. Draw near and meet with us, please, and build us up. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Uh, Sunday was Easter, and so we celebrated the events of that weekend, the, the cross on Good Friday, and of course the, the empty tomb, the resurrection on Sunday. But as we said, we, more than actually celebrating the events, we're celebrating the message that's behind the events, the message that those events proclaim and give evidence to, that God so loved the world that he sent his Son to save people, to save human beings, all who trust him. Those words came from John 3.16, of course, we looked at that. But though it's not a, a, a resurrection passage, it neatly summarizes the, the message of Easter. And now we're a week after Easter, where do we go next? Well, I've got some ideas on where we'll go in, in following weeks and months, but for several reasons this week I found myself inclined to, to pause here to, to lead us in a little bit more time spent on the topic of the resurrection. It's, it's a topic that we always talk about on Easter, and then, kind of in course of habit, our talk often turns then right after Easter from the resurrection to talk more consistently about the cross, which is a good and fine and wonderful thing to do. I don't mean to diminish that at all. The cross is critical. The cross is at the heart of the Christian faith. But it might be helpful, maybe beneficial, I think, for us to think a little bit more about resurrection, specifically resurrection life. So that's what I'm going to spend a couple of weeks on, resurrection life. And I imagine that as I look at the passage today and a couple other passages over a few weeks here, that a lot of what we'll think about and a lot of the passages that we'll see will be familiar to you. But what I'm going to kind of keep before us and ask you to keep focused on is the life piece of that, the resurrection life. This is all about life, new life provided for us by a wise and powerful and gracious and loving God. A wonderful thing, resurrection life. Especially, it's, it's, it's wonderful and it's, it's noteworthy, especially as you see that this life is what the cross is working towards, what it's, what it's moving forward to. Not, not just in Easter weekend, I mean li literally in Easter weekend, the cross for Jesus, the cross leads to resurrection life. But that's meant to be us too, connected to Jesus, to pass with Jesus through the cross, Everybody turn off your cell phones. <laughs> we are meant to connect to Jesus, pass with Jesus through the cross, with Jesus then 
into the grave with him and then out of the grave again with him, raised to walk in newness of life. That's a phrase from Romans, which we'll look at eventually. So the, the cross is meant to, for us, the cross is meant to lead to newness of life, a new type of walk. So that's what we're going to be con- considering the next couple of weeks. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians 15, a familiar passage, a long passage. I'm going to read the whole thing and deal with it in two weeks. I'm going to deal with the first part of it this week and the, the second part next week. So I'm going to read it all, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 34. And before I actually get into the passage, then I'm going to make a comment about verse 29 because it's often a confusing verse. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. But if we had been looking at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, we'd see Paul dealing with the gospel, the same message that we talked about last week, a critical piece of which is the resurrection. So he's, he's talking about the gospel, the gospel of God's grace, and then it leads him into talking about the resurrection. So that's, that's kind of where we're going today. So let me read the passage 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12, all the way through verse 34. So he's talking about the gospel and then says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. A long passage. I'm going to deal with the the first part and and then a little bit from the very end today. But before I get into it, as I said, I want to make a comment about verse 29. People being baptized on behalf of the dead. Or grammatically, we could say, on account of the dead, or because of the dead. What is this about? Well, the simple answer is, no one knows for sure. There are guesses. I, I have a perspective, I have a theory on it, which I think fits well with it, but, but it isn't clear what Paul's describing here. He doesn't go into detail about it here. And that's because, this is very important to notice, Paul doesn't go into detail here 
which is the only place in all of the Bible that mentions anything remotely like this. Paul doesn't go into detail about it here because he's not teaching this practice, not commending this practice, not encouraging the church to do this practice. That these people, doesn't even say it's the church doing it, it just says people do. He's not teaching it or commending it or encouraging it. He's just, in fact, using it as an illustration. Like in the following verses, he then uses his own life in Ephesus as an illustration. He's using it as an illustration, grabbing something that they knew about to show something about the resurrection. Namely, people know there is one. If there is no resurrection, if they're not raised at all, as it says at the end of the verse, why would people do this? Why would people undergo this action with regard to, on behalf of, on account of, because of the dead, if the dead cease to exist and are not anymore? People know better. That's all he's saying. It's just an illustration here in the context of resurrection. There is one people know. And they do things with regards to the dead. So what exactly are they doing? It's not clear, but we do know what they aren't doing. We do know that they are not doing anything that has any help, any use, any efficacy, and any, any power to make something happen with regards to salvation. And we know that because Paul's theology on salvation is extremely clear. Salvation comes by faith alone in Christ alone, trusting Christ's cross. It has not anything to do with baptism. Paul says so in this very letter. At the very beginning of this book, he says, I came, he lived in Corinth for a year and a half, he was there, and I came not baptizing anybody because I wasn't sent to baptize, I was sent to preach the gospel different than baptism. I was sent here to preach the gospel to help people become saved, to come into connection with God, not to baptize. That's why I didn't baptize anybody. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I did baptize those two people, but I don't think I baptized anybody else in the whole time I was here because that wasn't my job. I was sent to preach the gospel to help people know God. So Paul's very clear, as is the rest of the Bible. Baptism does not save. Baptism does not give a person a leg up on getting saved or give them an advantage on being saved. So, the short answer, we don't know what's going on there, but we do know what isn't going on there. And that's important to understand. This is an illustration showing people know there's life after this life. So with that, then let me make a couple of observations about resurrection and what it means from this passage, focusing particularly on the first paragraph and on the very last one. Two observations. Here's my first. The resurrection means that we are no longer condemned to perish in our sins. The reality of the resurrection means that we are no longer condemned to perish in our sins. Verse 12 opens by introducing the problem for some reason or another, some component in this church in Corinth, thought and was teaching that there is no resurrection. So Paul's compelled to address subject because it's so important. He has to. And he's talking to people who profess to be Christians, so he grabs onto some, some common ground there, the resurrection of Jesus, and then unpacks, kind of you know, in, in reverse logic here, unpacks what that would mean. Verse 13 and following. So let's assume, okay, your assumption that dead are not raised, dead people don't come back to life, so Jesus, fully God and fully man, if men are not raised, then Jesus the man was not raised. Still dead. And if Christ was not raised, then all that we've preached about this whole gospel message, which includes the resurrection, and is a critical point, all we preach is pointless and fruitless, blasphemous lie, and all that you've believed is pointless and fruitless and Verse 17, you're still in your sins, and everybody who died believing this, verse 18, has perished. If Christ wasn't raised, the gospel's false, 
you're still in your sins headed towards perishing when you die. When he says perishing, that's where the idea of condemnation comes in. He's touching on the eternal dimension, what it still means to, in this life, be in our sins. The eternal dimension of that is to perish. All those who died believing in this would be empty hope did more than just die. They perished. Dying and perishing are two different things. Perishing is on the other side of dying. To perish is to face the wrath and the curse of God. To face that wrath and for eternity experience the type of punishment. These, these are serious words. This is sobering. The type of punishment that an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and completely holy, holy, holy God is compelled and able to administer completely holy and always present everywhere who knows everything and has all power. Completely holy must defend pure, holy righteousness and justice. And for eternity will always be pouring that out on the objects of his wrath. To exist forever under that is hell. Awful. It is to perish forever. To be perishing forever. There is no way to talk about that pleasantly. When we look at the law of God written in his word and also written in our own hearts, every single person on earth knows right and wrong. Sometimes we get wrong what is right and wrong, but we all know there is right and wrong, and we all know that we break it. The law of God is written on our hearts and written in his word, and it's given to us as law, as requirement, not suggestion. And it is a good law. Because what it is, is it's the, the character of God who is the definition of good it's the character of God expressed, written down even. The kind of society that, that, that would be, if, if that law, that written law was actually lived out, would be the best place you can ever imagine. It would be a place that knew no evil and no pain and no corruption and no exploitation and no abuse, no hurt, no, no separation, no sorrow, no alienation, but instead knew in its place union and love and peace and joy. It would be sweet, but we don't know that because we don't actually follow God's law. We instead are bent away from it, bent away from submission to God and following God and bent towards following ourselves, bent towards autonomy. We're broken in our hearts and so we are broken in the world that we've created. Everything has come apart in here and out here, everything that we touch. That's why the world's messed up. That's why we're messed up. And that creates all kinds of problems for us, but the greatest trouble for us is our sin before God because God is a righteous judge will oppose and will condemn. He must, because he's good and just, will oppose and will condemn all that destroys his beautiful and right creation. This is the greatest trouble for us. It is a terrible predicament for us. What can we do? Well, the natural thing to do, the natural thing that people do is, is we... Turned to ourselves, we 
keep turning to ourselves and go one of two ways. We either attempt to fix it all by our own means, to, to attempt to kind of meet the standard, to work harder, to perform and to obey. That, that's, that's very human. In fact, that's what a lot of people think Christianity is. It is not. But a lot of people think, well, he gives us the rules so that we'll follow them. He gives us the rules so that we realize we don't follow them. But we, we commonly turn towards our own ways and say, let me, let me try harder, let me work harder. Or we say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just chuck the standard because that's hopeless. And I'm, I think I'm a pretty good person as I am. We, we turn to ourselves either to, to try to meet the standard harder or to throw away the standard. But we had hoped, if we'd read the scripture carefully, we had hoped, and we who were followers of Jesus, we, we had hoped that, that there was another way. That God had actually acted to provide a way out of this predicament. That God, we had hoped that God had amazingly and graciously provided an awesome answer. Christ as a substitute sacrifice. If we're, if we're headed towards the wrath and the curse of God, we had hoped that God had provided Jesus to step into our place and take the wrath and curse of God for us. That's what was going on on Good Friday, we hope. We were led to believe that, that Jesus would step onto the cross, hang on the cross, cursed by God. What's going on on the cross? The curse of God on Jesus. He dies under the curse of God. That's, that's clear enough. And he goes into the grave. And as he goes into the grave, the question is left hanging in the balance. Did that death of Jesus do anything? Did it accomplish anything? Did it work? Was it in fact, as we hoped, a cursed death in our place for us? Or was it just Jesus dying for Jesus? Jesus dying a cursed death for his own sin. Because he, he, God says, no, that's wrong. You are in fact Jesus. You are in fact a liar and a blasphemer. You claim to be God. You claim to be the God of the Old Testament in flesh. No. You claim to be the only way to God. No. You claim to be the one who can teach the word of God and call people to it. No. You claim to be the only Savior of the world. No. Is that it? Is Jesus dying a cursed death for Jesus? Or is he dying a cursed death for me? And as he goes into the grave, the jury's out. And we don't know. If he stays in the grave, stays dead, there's our answer. A false prophet whom God condemned, too bad for him. And for us, because we're still in our predicament. Still in our sins, end of verse 17. Headed to death and perishing. Verse 18. If he stays in the grave, we're doomed. But he didn't. This is good news. He rose up out of the grave. The jury comes back in and gives its verdict. Vindicated. This is good news. But here's, here's the verdict. The cross actually worked. If you, if you know the, the, I don't even know what this term means, but the artist of the spoken word, I'm not poet, singer, I'm not sure. If you know the artist of the spoken word propaganda, he's got this little expression where he says the gospel in five minutes, and he says, at the resurrection we all cheered because the check cleared. When the, the jury comes back in and gives us the verdict, vindicated, it worked. It actually worked. Because here he comes out of the grave, not cursed anymore, not condemned, but, but approved with God's verdict on him. And there, 
there right there is, is the firm evidence that this Jesus is in fact all that he said he was and is in fact a savior and that there is in fact hope and we are not in fact headed to perishing and we are not in fact left in our sins. There, there is life there. That is good news. Good news. There is hope in this Jesus raised from the dead, champion over our sins, savior from condemnation and there is no hope anywhere else. The resurrection draws a line and says, this works, and nothing else does. God's stamp of approval and a clear sign. Condemnation has been, for all who trust him, has been poured out on this Jesus, and therefore you who trust him, there is no condemnation on you, and you are not Paul's theoretical argument is not true. You are not in your sins and you will never perish. You'll die, but you will not perish. You will know life forever. That is incredibly important and incredible good news for you as you sit in the middle of yet again another failure. The tomb is empty. You are not condemned and you will not perish because of what you just did. There's, there's a message. There's a call here to all who have not trusted Christ. If you haven't trusted Christ, there's, see this. The tomb says this is the way. But I know that many of us here have, most of us here have. Ah, that's good. That's good. You are no longer condemned to perish in your sin. Important to see that. Important to believe that, especially when you feel the weight and the guilt of your sin. We, we so often, we, we attempt, in this, in this turning to ourselves, we, we so often attempt to, to kind of deny that we've sinned or pretend that we didn't sin or pretend that we're not sinners. I was reading this book this last week. It talked about how we're all sinners. And, and the writer said, most sinners are really nice people. We sometimes use the word sinner and we feel like, Ugh. there are some sinners who are bad people, but most sinners are really nice people because most of us are really nice and we're all sinners. Most sinners are really nice people. But then there are times when we ourselves get behind the smile and feel the, the weight of it and the guilt of it and say, oh, man, I'm a nice person, but I'm me. And in that moment is when you need to hear, no condemnation will not perish. The judge is pleased with you pleased with you, sinner. Pleased with your sin? No, of course not. Pleased with you. That's good news. We're no longer condemned because of the resurrection we know we're no longer condemned to perish in our sin. But this needs to lead us into the second point, which is really the second point, if we think about it here, is kind of the, the launch into what I really want to be talking about in the next couple of weeks here. Because if you think about this, the second observation and what will follow is the positive counterpoint to the first observation. The, the first point, all that I was just talking about, while it is really good news, it is essentially negative good news. Good news about what doesn't happen, about what isn't and won't be, not perishing, not condemned. That's, that's, that's a negative. Now, those are tremendous privileges. I was just, just talking about that. And, and if you get any sense of what sin and wrath and perishing is like, then to have that not be of you, that's, 
sing of that and rejoice in it. It, it is a critical glory in the Christian life. But still, it is a negative blessing, so to speak. The Christian message starts right there, but it doesn't end there. It moves on to the positive. The positive that's only made possible because of the negative, because of what isn't and won't be. But the positive is much more positive. It's much more about the possible, about what will be, about what is, about what is coming, about what can be. And intentionally, it's the goal of the gospel. So, starting kind of like starting right now and then and moving on in the next couple of weeks here, we're going to talk about this. The beginning of this is, is in this passage, in the, the first and the last part of this passage. And it's not all explained here. So I'm going to say some things that, that are going to be kind of fleshed out in following weeks here. But, but the beginning of this positive is here. Verse 17 especially where I begin to see this, and then down in verses 33 and 34. So let me put it this way, the second observation. The resurrection brings us into a life Freed from sinning. A life of change. That's how I'm going to express it this week. The resurrection brings us into a life that is freed from sinning. A life of change. The resurrection of Christ means we, his people, are no longer bound no longer spiritually compelled to live in our sins. Something happened to you, Christian. I'm talking about a Christian here. When you became a Christian, something happened to you. Supernaturally, something changed. Not just freed from the penalty of sin, freed from that perishing, but now you are freed from its hold on you, from its power over you, you're no longer bound to live in it, so you can change, you can grow, you can expect and can experience. Expect and experience victory over sin in this life. Over the sins that plague you and burden you, you can expect and can experience growth. Come to this first by considering just a little bit from verse 17. In particular, the, the plural sins at the end of that verse. If you look at that again, you're still in your sins. And I, I don't make too much of this, but I think there's a little point here. Commonly, Paul will talk about sin, the singular. And when he does, commonly, he means a state, a, a status. A condition that, that you are in, and that's what I was leaning on in the first point, about this, this condition that when like that and we die, that's when we perish. So it commonly. That's, a, that's how I was using it in the early part. But he actually says, still in your sins, which gives a little different flavor to it. I, I don't want to make too much of this because I think he has both in view, but now I'm kind of leaning on the plural there. And sins gives a little bit more of emphasis to particular things. Particular experiences or, or actions, whether it be with your hands or with your mind or your heart. That's where you're stuck in the life of sinning, the life of sins. Until Christ died and rose and freed you from it. Which doesn't mean you don't commit sins. It just means you're no longer trapped in them or bound to them. Maybe it's a bit like this. If you, if you think about, if you work at a job where you, you punch a time clock, during the hours of your shift, you have to be there and you have to be working. And if you're not, you're going to be in trouble. But when you take the card out and, or you clock in your number or, or whatever and you clock out, And then you stay for another half hour and process another couple orders or, or whatever it is you're doing. 
you're not, once you clocked out at the end of your shift, you're not bound to be there anymore, but you still are. Still working, still doing. Same thing you're doing before. But along comes someone who says, if you don't have to be here, go home. Stop the work, go home and rest. You're there, but you don't have to be anymore. That's a bit how it is with our committing of sins now. We're there, we still do it, we still know this life, but there's something that's been broken. We've clocked out. It's a bit like that. I'm sure there's some hole in that analogy somewhere, but you get the idea. Sins are present in our life, but you're not left in them. The resurrection means that you're freed from this power. Before the resurrection, before a Christian and the resurrection, you're on the clock and you have to. Afterwards, you don't, you aren't. Now, there's a bit of a nuance there in that, that sin sins thing, but... I think there's a little point there, and it's the same point that lies behind verse 33 and 34 and how Paul speaks down there in 33 and 34. If you read 33 and 34 alone, just if you just picked them out of and wrote them on a note card and read them, you would say, that sounds kind of like the Bible, and it's pretty clear what it means. I get that. It sounds biblical. It sounds like something Paul might say. Sure. Belongs in the Bible somewhere. But why is it here? Why is it stuck in the middle of a really long discussion about the resurrection? Verses and verses, paragraphs before and after, all about the resurrection. And it's right here in the middle that Paul chooses to exhort the church to wake up and not go on sinning. Not go on committing sins. Why does he say that here? Because of what I was just talking about. Because something's happened to the church. They've clocked out. But in their denial of the resurrection, they're not thinking about the resurrection. They're not thinking about what's actually happened to them. And so they're not actually walking in this experience. But he wants them to and says, you should. This is who you are. They've missed something here. Something that's for this life right now. The first point no longer going to perish. That's for the life to come. But for this life right now, they've missed something. And he calls them to wake up. This isn't right. Stop doing this. He's pulling in there at work and saying, go home already. You're off the clock. Frankly, you're a liability if you're off the clock and you're working here. Get out. That's what your boss says to you, right? Go. You can't be here if you're not on the clock. Go. And Paul's language is a little bit, go. Stop this. Because you can. He's freed you from your sins and from entanglement in them. Freed you so that you don't have to walk in them. Freed you from the power, the, the control. Now, do you still sin? Yes. Is there still a lure? Indeed, there is still a lure, a still a draw. There's a reason that we stay there. There's something, you know, the bad company that he mentions there, bad company corrupts good morals, verse 30, end of verse 33. There's something there that draws us from the world Remember that negative world? The world that's around us draws us and inclines us to think, this is good, this is fun, this is positive, this will be affirming to you. It feels really good when that boy says this about you and pays you attention. It feels really good when you close that deal and, and crush the competition. It feels, it's attractive. Come on, do this. There's a lure there that inclines you towards sin. And you're easily pulled if 34, you have no knowledge of God. And you don't have the opposite lure. No way, says the opposite lure. A, a knowledge of God, an awareness of this is who the Lord is. This is the life found in the Lord's way. This is the God who forgave me, who provided for me a sacrifice of atonement so that I would be freed to walk in newness of life. No way. You can't offer me that. I'm not giving you a hundred bucks for that nickel. No way. 
I used to, when I was little, I thought paper wasn't as valuable as metal, but now I know better. No way. I have a knowledge of God. But they didn't. And they were lured by the world and drawn off. And Paul says, that's not right. There are lures out here. There are powers out here. but, But you are not obligated, so you can go either way. Choose to walk with the Savior who loves you, not with the world that hates you. So resurrection brings us into a life freed from sinning because it frees us from power and obligation. Frees us to a life of change, no longer burden. So so think about this. To see the goodness of God in this, think think of yourself and think of your sin not as a crime committed against God. Now, there's a, there's a right place to think about crime and to think about legal language. A lot of Paul's language works in the legal realm, condemnation and justification. Those are courtroom words. So there's some legitimacy in thinking about it like that, but for the minute right now, don't. Don't think of it like a crime. Think of it instead, think of your sin as a devastating disease or a crippling illness. Think of it as a plague that plagues you. Every day you get up plagued by your sin. You're you're a nice person, but you're a sinner. So I'm not trying to insult you. I'm just saying you're a sinner. You get up plagued every morning. I do too. Plagued by your own sin. Other people sin too, for sure. For sure. But notice this. Other people's sin plagues you? Absolutely, absolutely. But all of that has nothing to do with how God wants to work in you to produce in you love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and love towards him and love towards neighbor. If you, if you could walk like that, whatever they do to you, who can be against you? Oh, they're all against you, but who, who's against you? And this that God calls you to walk in, this that God promises to produce in you, that's life. But you're plagued by your own self and you worry and you fear and you lust and you envy and you rage and you appease and you retaliate and you deceive and you blame shift and you hide and you avoid and you accuse and you self-justify, which is not to condemn you. You're not condemned. There's no condemnation on you. But are you plagued? Are you plagued? Yeah. That's me. You're nice, maybe it's not you, but that's me, for sure. I'm a pastor. I smile a lot. But I fear and I lust and I envy and I rage and I appease and I retaliate and deceive and blame shift and hide, etc., etc. And so do you. And it robs you of life. Are you plagued? Your sins are numerous and deceptive and subtle and dangerous. And so sorrowing, you look at yourself and here's where you, if you have eyes to see this, you see the goodness of God right here, not leaving you in that. Not leaving you in your sins. But instead, and we'll come to this later, Romans 6 has a lot more about this topic. But instead, connecting you to Christ's resurrection to raise you up into a new life. That you can walk in newness of life. It's Romans 6, 4. No longer under the dominion of sin. That's Romans 6, 14. 
God raised Christ not only to free you from condemnation, but to free you from the power of sin that holds you and that plagues you so as to bring you into a different life and give you the ability to walk into healing and change and growth. How does that happen? How does that happen? Well, first it happens by he clocked you out. He broke the power to make you free. And then what he did was he put his Holy Spirit in you, a new power, to move you and incline you to follow after him. He's, he's put a different engine inside of you, a, a different magnet perhaps that is drawn to, that resonates with, that, that's, that's inclined to move towards this beautiful God. And then he puts in front of you knowledge of God. He puts it in front of you in the scriptures. He puts it in front of you with the body around you, with the preaching and the teaching of the word and and the communion of of the church. He puts it all around you to make you aware of who he is. So he gives you an ability and he gives you a power and he gives you an incentive, the knowledge of this good God and the awareness of the deception of the world. And then he calls you to fight. Because none of that is automatic. Notice Paul's tone here, full of exhortation. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. Do not go on sinning. That's exhortation with a bit of heat behind it. So you get you got to fight here. You can't just say, "Well." God's given me new life, so I suppose it'll happen. If you think of a garden, you plant the seeds, you water, that all can work, but you still gotta, you still gotta tend it. You don't make the life in, in the seed. You don't, you don't make the sunshine, but you gotta tend it. The power comes from God. But the reason there's an exhortation here, do not be deceived, wake up, don't go on sinning, is that we, Christian, we, you, must take up the tools. The scriptures in the hands of the Spirit, in the community of the church, and walk that direction. And say, no, you can, you must. Now you can, so you must. Here's a good God who has acted to free you from your sin. Maybe I can ask you this. What is your mind filled with? This, this is maybe what the, what the fight looks like for me. What is your mind filled with? Fight to set your mind not on the world, but on knowing God. So what your mind is filled with is, is, is going to consist a lot of what, what you feed to yourself. Do you feed to yourself the television Sally down the block's comments and whatever Instagram feeds you. How ironic that they call that a feed and all those social media things, a feed. I have an Instagram account, okay? Truth in advertising. But sometimes I think of it as like we take our phone, open our mouths and just say, here, feed me. That does not have no effect. What do you feed yourself with? Do you feed yourself with, with the bad company around you ruining good morals? Or do you feed yourself with the knowledge of God? When stuck in your plague, when plagued by your sin, you cannot 
find success by turning to yourself and saying, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't. You instead have to say, what I will do is feed myself. That's how I won't. Does that make sense? Now, I'm, I'm not trying to cut out any kind of, I'm actually trying to encourage us taking responsibility for our lives, but what I'm trying to do is you first got to take responsibility for what you're feeding into here, what you're feeding into here. And then say no and yes, God. There's a battle there, but God has done the work of freeing us and providing us the power of his spirit and giving us incentive, the knowledge of him and his beauty and his promises. So turn to him and fill your mind with him. Set your mind on things above where Christ is, who is your life, and from heaven where he is, from where he is coming. Set your mind on those things and not on the world. And walk in newness of life that he has provided for you. The resurrection means that we are freed from a life of sinning, freed to a life of change and growth. And that's really good news. So uh, what I want to do in the next few weeks is talk a little more about that. Let me pray. Father, help us. Help us as a church. Help us as a church to embrace this, this positive goal of the gospel that we would walk in newness of life with you, different people, for your honor and for our joy. Help us to embrace that and to understand it in this as we talk about different pieces, different pieces will be more familiar to some of us than to others. Will you flesh it all out so that individually and as a body we all grow up in this? This would be a sweet life and it would be a sweet community and it would bring you much glory. So Father, please do that. As we take communion now, Lord, would you do another little work here of filling our minds further with the knowledge of you, reminding us of what you did on the cross and how you've come to feed us and how you provide resurrection, new life for us. Remind us of all that as we take these elements in our hands. Sit and pray. Meet us and build us up, Lord, please. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.